0: This is No Stop Lights with Ken R. want to thank our sponsors, Mickey Fins, Marlboro PD Electric, Carolina Bank, Pepsi of Florence, Um, schools back in at Francis Marion University. Someone who has joined us on occasions, Dr. Will Bolt, history chair of Francis Marion University. We'll kind of walk through um, as if we were students at Francis Marion and, and taking Dr. Will Bolt's early American history class. 20 18-year-olds walk into Dr. Bull's class on day one. How do you introduce them to early American history? Where does that journey begin, and and somebody under your tutelage?
1: I I sort of cover myself and say, all right, this is going to be the the toughest period of American history. You have 13 colonies, all established at different times by different men and women for different reasons. Uh, The average colonist really didn't have any idea what was going on. Um, probably more than 30 miles outside of their front door. James Madison, probably one of the most worldly guys we had set at one point of the affairs of Georgia. <clears throat> I know as much about them as I do of Kamkotska, which is the, the middle of nowhere in Russia. So again, these are they're all set up evolving independently of one another, and really just a couple of things that they have in common. One is they're all under British rule, and two, once you get to the, the 1760s and 1770s, they kind of realize that there is some sort of glue this uh, this love of liberty and freedom, which they feared was was about to be taken away from them by the British government. So just trying to synthesize and going through all the twists and turns, uh, it's difficult. I tell the students, bear with me, be patient. Once we get to the revolution, we're, we're all going to be sing from the same hymnal, right? We, we come together, and it gets a lot easier after that.
0: But you spend <laughs> how much time preparing them for the revolution? How specific <laughs> do you go into the, the, the Commonwealth of Virginia or the colony that is South Carolina?
1: Well, since I'm in South Carolina, I do spend a little extra time. Just, yeah, you you teach with the... So the high points would be what? You you obviously have to do Virginia. Virginia, of course, House of Burgesses gives us democracy. Uh, You do the Puritans up in New England, right? Religious freedom. Uh, You kind of do New York just because the rise of New York City, uh, the port, uh, these sort of urban areas become sort of the hotbed in the American Revolution. You boil them all down to just a couple of little bits of trivia. You know, if you will, you know, Pennsylvania Quakers, Maryland... Catholics, you know, you just you just keep it nice and simple for them so if they ever wind up on Jeopardy. Uh, they can at least kind of say something about each of these colonies. And you don't spend anything more than like 10, 15 seconds on Delaware and some of the other ones. But, yeah, you, you see sort of these themes of religious freedom, economic independence, themes which reverberate throughout e- American history. You kind of go back and you trace and you show them the origins,
0: where it came from. So who are the central figures? Who are the personalities that you focus on during this pre-revolutionary colonist era, or
1: are there any? Well, you just talk about a couple of the, the founders, of some of the colony. William Penn, right, a very modest guy who names his colony after himself, right, <laughs> Pennsylvania, right. You know, me a Trump, right? <laughs> the, the Duke of York, what does he name his colony? New York, after his title as well, all right. So you know, James Oglethorpe, the only the only founder who actually lives to see uh, the American Revolution, right? He's the founder of Georgia. And again, you point out like why they were founded. Just some of the unique things, some of the differences about each of them. But no, I'm usually in a hurry to get to the revolution. Uh so you start killing people and having an American revolution.
0: So so day one of the American Revolution in Dr. Wilbolt's class goes somewhat
1: like how? You gotta do you gotta do all the build up, right? All the mistakes, the actions of the British government. Uh you start with the Stamp Act, seventeen sixty four and you move all along. You hit, you hit all the mile markers. And then, of course, you get to, to Lexington and Concord in April of 1775. And then you just kind of take, like, a, a nice little breath. It's like, all right, now we're—I'm in the comfort zone at this point. You know, I can have really a, a brain fart, but I'm pretty much—it's it's on autopilot at that point.
0: Are kids at all understanding? I mean, obviously, you're asking a lot of kids to to know the colonies and much about the colonies pre-Revolutionary War— but does the interest kick up a notch once you kind of go yeah. to the Revolutionary War?
1: Well, well, it should. If you're talking about the American Revolution at a school named after someone who fought in the American Revolution, if they don't really appreciate that, then, then God help them. It's a pretty cool gig that not many people can say they get to talk about the Revolution at a school that's named after someone who fought in that conflict. So it kind of makes me a rock star among my fellow, fellow historians. And so, yeah, you're going to talk all about uh, Francis Marion for sure. So those those are good days.
0: Yeah. So 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 once you start down that road, is it interactive? Is it you lecturing? Are there
1: questions? I'm I'm old school. I just give them the information, and I always tell them there's no such thing as a dumb, a stupid question. You know, sometimes I might do a might not do a good job of trying to the the point I'm trying to get across. And I tell them if you got a question, more than likely the guy in the seat next to you or the girl in the seat next to you is lost as well. And so sometimes they'll say and say, hey. That's not how I heard it, or they'll maybe just have something else to say. And sometimes it can spark a little bit of a dialogue. But for the most part, I'm just sort of the old traditional guy. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to give you the the information and the facts. If you got a question, we'll we'll stop and answer it. But we'll just go through it and get to the next the next set of material.
0: Okay, it starts with a a brief understanding of the colonies. Yep. It goes About to the week. Revolutionary War, which I yep. guess would be Genesis in the Bible. In the beginning, <laughs> God <laughs> the created the heavens of the earth. So, so where do we go from there? I mean, where do we go from the American Revolution?
1: We win the American Revolution, then we take the idea, right? We've got this idea of all men are created equal. How do we put that into a viable form of government? And so we talk about some of the state constitutions, the Articles of Confederation, what worked, what didn't work. And this is, of course, all leading up to the buildup of our federal constitution in 1787. So we're going to spend about a week covering all of that stuff as well.
0: So... so- is Washington the central figure in your uh, teaching of history in the
1: American Revolution? He, he's an important figure. Why? In Washington, it's, it pains us to say Washington loses more battles than he wins in the Revolution. Most when, don't know that. Exa- no, exactly. Most of Washington's troops were running as fast as they could from the British. I mean, Washington loses New York City. If he starts the New York City campaign with 20,000 men, a couple of months later, he's got 5,000 men. But Washington's motto was survive and you will succeed. Keep the army intact. And so Washington was sort of this big, big picture guy, realized the longer we stretch this out, uh, that's certainly going to work in our favor. And so that's the point I stress uh, to Washington or to the students. As long as Washington had an army in the field, uh, the British were going to have to keep their army in the field. This was going to drain the British taxpayers. And so Washington had the clairvoyance to say, time is on our side. And so that's Washington's uh, greatest contribution, I would argue, and Washington's other contribution is when we're talking about a new constitution, lots of Americans said, oh, I'm not sure about that. Once George Washington says, I'm going to go to Philadelphia to be a part of this constitutional convention, lots of other guys said, uh-oh, if George Washington's willing to put his status on the line, I better go to Philadelphia as well. So if you didn't have Washington, you probably wouldn't have had the best and the brightest in so, Philadelphia. So Hamilton and Jefferson are not that noted
0: during your teaching of the Revolutionary War, but but when do we pass the baton yeah.
1: from the general to some of the political theorists? Right. Once you get to the to the 1790s, and this is when you have the, the the politics start to ratchet up. And we'd all been kind of close together. There were factions, political factions in the country. But once you get the new government in place, very very quickly, Hamilton puts his program forward. Jefferson says, Jefferson says, uh uh-uh, uh, this this isn't for me. So we have the rise of political parties, Jefferson versus Hamilton. And this is the entire arc, the scope of American history. I mean, most of American history is simply a continuation of the first time Alexander Hamilton had dinner with Thomas Jefferson. The things they argued over states' rights, limited government, government funding, taxation. How many times have we talked about those same issues here on the radio in
0: 2022, 2023? When Okay, we we live— we leave the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. I think Jefferson gets reelected in 1804.
1: Jefferson writes two terms, 1800, 1804.
0: Uh, the second reelection of Jefferson in 1804 is eight years prior to the War of 1812. W- w- walk me through that historical period.
1: Uh, Thomas Jefferson, in, in his second term, the British are not respecting the rights, uh, economic rights of the United States. They were stopping American ships and forcing American sailors to serve in the British Navy. And Jefferson said, "This isn't this isn't right." Uh, the British even shelled, attacked an American naval ship, uh, the USS Leopard, USS Chesapeake. Excuse me, in 1807, and lots of Americans were demanding a declaration of war. And Jefferson said, "Well, you know, wars wars are expensive. You know, I've cut the federal debt in half. If we have to go to war, then all of this hard work it's going to simply disappear overnight." So Jefferson tried to find a diplomatic solution. Ordered an embargo. It uh, didn't really work out, and so he leaves Washington, D.C., dumps the mess into his successor's lap, James Madison, and says, all right, Jim, you deal with this. I'm going back to Monticello. And Jefferson never came back to Washington, D.C., and so Madison tried to sort it out. But finally, after several years, uh, Madison realized that the people wanted war, and so Madison said, well, it would be better for me politically if I got out in front and led this, because as president, Madison really had no role. Congress could declare war. And now Madison's commander-in-chief, but Madison said, it's better for me politically if I'm going to lead this drive. He was a smart enough politician. He realized which way the winds were blowing. And the War of 1812 is a grassroots war uh, that the people wanted, not so much the politicians.
0: So was, did the British perceive Jefferson to be somewhat of a pacifist? I mean, that, that's kind yeah. of a hypothetical question. Well, but
1: The British, of course, had their spies here in America. And Jefferson wasn't shy about saying, we're going to gut the army. And the Navy, I've I've told you before, Jefferson thought, all you need the National Government for is to carry the mail. Each of the states have their state militias. Uh, Jefferson despised the Navy. He thought that it catered to the aristocracy. So, again, he let most of the naval ships rot, didn't repair them. And And the British knew this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And Jefferson's, we're going to have a, we called it a fleet of mosquito gunboats. We're going to put a cannon on a rowboat and we're going to take on a 50-gun British frigate. And the British frigate doesn't even have to fire a shot. They just raise the sails and could ram it. But again, Jefferson, we can't compete with the British Navy. Why bother even trying? Let's save the taxpayers money and hope that we don't have to go to war against them. So did
0: we begin becoming, last question of this okay. segment, so in, in eight, the War of 1812, is that when America committed itself to a full-fledged military,
1: a national defense, right. so to speak? Coming out of the War of 1812, uh, it's called the Treaty of Ghent, it's really an armistice the people in the United States and the people in Great Britain thought, we're going to have round three, uh, probably in a couple of years down there. We're going to lick our wounds, get ready. Uh, We never had that round three. And so there were several flare-ups throughout the 19th century. But by the end of the 19th century, the United States and the British were very close to forming an alliance. But no, to your point, after the War of 1812, the old Jefferson idea that a standing army was a bad thing, now suddenly you say, "Uh -uh." uh-uh, the state militia simply can't do it. We've got to provide food. We've got to provide funding. We've got to improve our roads so we can move our troops back and forth. We've got to put tariffs on goods so that when the next war comes, the British are going to blockade and seal off all American ports. We've got to be able to manufacture our own guns, blankets, and weapons of war by ourselves.
0: You know, There's some data out there now that shows African-Americans may be considering a vote for Donald Trump, the Republican Party, um, once again, that's data that there have been no votes cast. I have no idea, uh, what the interpretation of that data will eventually lead to. I can imagine somebody out there listening to Bolt and I talk for 20 minutes about early American history, no mention of, of slavery, yeah, yeah. but there, there's no doubt that we, we, we kind of went from the colonies to the war of 1812 slavery was prevalent yeah. then and, and very much a part of, I who the colonies were and who America sure, became. Oh,
1: sure, well, sure. And Well, there was one historian famously said slavery was like a, a snake coiled up in the corner, ready to strike at any moment. And right from time to time, uh, it, it would sort of rear its ugly head. Uh, the politicians, the American people would have to deal with it. There was almost a, a gentleman's agreement among the politicians. They realized that it was a dangerous subject. They realized it pointed out the hypocrisy in the United States. And the, the agreement was, let's try and avoid it as best we can. Jefferson's philosophy was, well, eventually it's just going to kind of wither wither away on its own. So let's not make a mountain out of a molehill, when in fact the exact opposite. Even though you cut off the transatlantic slave trade, it was still growing uh, through natural reproduction, growing exponentially. And of course, now once you start to move west, the, the big question becomes, well, does slavery go west as well? Um, Southerners said they have the right to take their property out west. You know the Senate said, well, slavery follows the flag. And so again, here is uh, the big rub in American history. And so at this point, you really cannot ignore it. You can't kick the can down the road. Once you get to the 1850s, as a result of the California gold rush, you've got an economic boom. So no longer can you talk about the tariff, government funding for roads and canals, the banking issue is resolved. What's the only thing that's left to talk about? It's the issue of slavery. And politicians simply Weren't up to the task so the at the end
0: of the at the end of the war of 1812 there's one party yes in American politics
1: The Democratic Jefferson's party
0: yeah um and then and then some guy named Andrew Jackson shows <laughs> yeah. up and he's um a bit non-conventional in the I, way he I goes about it, it. Yep. but I mean what were that you, you said it earlier that there was a period of time after the war of 1812 that was known as
1: it's called it the the era of good feelings and so the era of good feelings
0: ended when Andrew Jackson shows up
1: yep mm-hmm so, this a good run
0: so 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 the reason, and I want to get your take on this, sure. is it fair to say that the reason modern Americans consider Jefferson's relation to slavery so conflicting is because he wrote the Declaration of Independence, Yes, is because the Louisiana Purchase was on his watch, and there were some attempts to to address inflation as it relates to the growth of of American territory but but is that fair to say that Jefferson probably has? the most complicated relationship with slavery of any of
1: our founders. Here here I'll really blow your mind. Uh, Jefferson writes uh, a piece of legislation which gets incorporated into the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. In this piece, the language of Jefferson said, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in this area. And so this is why you don't have slavery north of the Ohio River. When we write the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, we go back and we steal thomas jefferson's own words so most of the language in the 13th amendment which finally gets rid of slavery comes from the same guy who famously said that all men are created equal so there is sort of some symmetry there's a circular nature in american history and jefferson on the issue of slavery
0: so jackson is a jeffersonian shows up when and under what terms and conditions does he
1: become politically relevant uh jackson of course one of the heroes of the war of 1812 Runs for president in 1824, loses, uh, had the most popular votes, the most electoral votes, but the election was thrown into the House. Jackson lost, uh, and Jackson said he lost through bargain and corruption. Well, there's there's so much we could do with that right there. We'll just... but uh, well, he there's, probably uh, right. There's, there's some low-hanging fruit there, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that for another day. Uh, Jackson resolves he's going to run again, wins in 1828, wins uh, in a landslide. And so now we're off and running, but... Uh, Again, Jackson, there was no middle ground. You either loved Andrew Jackson or you hated him. Uh, but Jackson and his followers realized that a viable two-party system was actually very, very good uh, for the United States. If you had each of the parties had followers in the North and the South, you're not going to talk about slavery. If you don't have political parties, you're going to have factions, a Northern faction, a Southern faction, a Western faction, maybe a New England faction. It's only, t- only a matter of time before you are going to double back and talk about slavery. Okay. So Jackson, again, two parties is in fact a good thing, as long as they're viable and competitive, keeps the politicians keeps holds their feet to the fire and avoids you from having to talk about slavery.
0: But the the, the post Andrew Jackson era in American history, to me, it's inevitable that we're eventually on the fast track to dealing with slavery in some way, shape, or form. Is that a fair characterization?
1: Yeah, it's it's one of those what if so once again you start to we start to expand and move out west. Then the question becomes, well, does slavery go out there? And Southerners said, well, yes, it should. And Northerners said no. And again, the South realized if slavery doesn't expand, if slavery is simply bottled up in the Southeast, over time it's going to wither away. I mean, Slavery is already withering away in Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri. So again, so if you don't have areas to offset this, eventually the North is going to have a supermajority and through the stroke of a pen is going to be able to get rid of and abolish slavery. And so again, this is just the the big, big rub. And this is why the issue of slavery consumes all politics. Uh, and in the 1850s, you didn't think of yourself as, oh, I'm a Whig, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. You said, I'm a Northerner. I'm a Southerner. We saw everything through the sectional lens. And, of course, we, know, we all know how the story ends with the Civil War. So when does
0: Abraham Lincoln's name become first known in American politics?
1: Uh, Lincoln was a backbench politician, served one term in the House of Representatives in 1848, Introduced a series of resolutions asking President Polk, where were the first shots of the Mexican-American War fired? And Lincoln got a nickname. He was called Spotty Lincoln. And so there was an agreement. Lincoln couldn't run for re-election. Goes back to Illinois. He's a railroad attorney. Resurfaces in 1858. Now, this is the year the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Challenges the incumbent Senator Stephen A. Douglas uh, to a series of debates. And Douglas said, I don't want to have these debates, but if I say no, I'm going to look weak. If I say yes, I mean, I'm a, I'm a household name. If I say yes, I'm going to give this guy free advertising. So Douglas says yes. Uh, in the end, Douglas holds on to his Senate seat, but these debates were widely followed. Uh, Newspapermen, reporters from New York, Philadelphia, Boston came to Illinois, watched, recorded these debates, and suddenly in the newly formed Republican Party, Abraham Lincoln is a rock star. And Lincoln knew there was really no chance he was going to win the election against Stephen A. Douglas. Uh, He was sort of looking ahead to another office, and somebody said to him, Hey, Abe, um, are you really running for president? And Lincoln smiled and said, The taste is in my mouth. And so Lincoln was already paving the way, uh, and it worked for him. He was able to get the Republican nomination in 1860.
0: Is Lincoln a devout Jeffersonian early in his
1: political existence? Lincoln kind of has it both ways. He famously said, I never had a political sentiment which didn't come from the Declaration of Independence. And so Lincoln, all throughout his life, his career, he believed the the genesis of the United States wasn't the Constitution. It was the Declaration of Independence. That's when the founding was, uh, 1776, when the 13 colonies came together. But no, Lincoln was, of course, just mesmerized. Jefferson was uh, his, his profound hero, Absolutely.
0: So when did Jefferson? Excuse me. When did Lincoln transition into an abolitionist?
1: Yeah, and that's one of those debates. And in Lincoln, probably early on, wanted to strike against slavery, but Lincoln realized the the people weren't ready. And I would argue this is maybe presidential leadership at its finest. You don't see it too too often. Maybe Franklin Roosevelt in the build up uh, to World War II, getting the draft coming back, getting the country on a war footing. Lyndon Johnson in the build-up to civil rights legislation and so Lincoln realized it was the right thing to do and so he had to convince the rest of the people in can the can North. Can I stop you there? Yeah, sure.
0: Is it is it fair to debate whether Lincoln felt it was the right thing to do or the politically expedient thing to do?
1: No no I think Lincoln had moral qualms about it and of course by the time Lincoln is ready to move on slavery the war has begun uh, thousands of lives have already been have already been lost so there has to be some sort of profound change in American society at this point. And so again, Lincoln is finally ready to move. He writes the Emancipation Proclamation. He's ready to submit it. And then his Secretary of State, William Seward, says, you can't submit it while we're losing the war. It looks like the last dying gasp of a defeated nation. You need a victory. And Lincoln said, you're absolutely right. Put it in a desk drawer uh, for a couple of months and waited till he had a victory at Antietam in September of 1862.
0: Is the last phase, the last lesson of early American history, the fact that Lincoln didn't look back? Yeah. I mean, he he seemed to me to be, I mean, from what I've read, obviously, you know more than I, because you're a history professor, but my understanding of of, of Lincoln post the end of the Civil War was to not revisit the sins of the South and Confederacy, so to speak.
1: Had, Had Lincoln lived right, he was sort of signaling it was going to be a very smooth, easy transition. And Lincoln said to, to Grant, you know, if, if I were in your position, I'd let him up easy. And Grant certainly followed the advice of Lincoln. Very, very generous terms. Uh, there wasn't going to be any trials, any executions, anything like that. And again, Lincoln was the, the consummate politician, knew how to play the game, knew how to twist the arms, grease the rails. Uh, Lincoln probably, had he survived, had he not been assassinated, this is what if. But certainly it would have been a much smoother, easier healing process between the North and the South had he lived.
0: The bookends of early American history, you're, you're the professor, I'm not, begin with Thomas Jefferson. He's I mean, I get Shurman? the colonists, but we weren't yeah. America then. Yeah. Uh, it begins with Jefferson, ends with, with Lincoln. Is, is that fair? Th- those would yeah, be the bookends on early American history. Lincoln
1: to 1877 now is where we kind of do the, the end of Reconstruction, and that's where like volume one ends and volume two kind of starts, 1877, Gilded Age, up to the present day.
0: Okay, so go. Uh, we've got about two minutes here. Yeah, sure. Lincoln is assassinated. 1865, yeah. The prominent figure from then to 1877
1: is who? Uh, you've got the president, Andrew Johnson, who's not fit for it. And the guys who opposed Andrew Johnson, they were called the radical Republicans. And these are the guys who wanted to punish the South. Uh, they were for full equality between the races. Some of them were even for full equality between the sexes. And some of these guys aren't very, very savory, but Charles Sumner, Thaddeus Stevens, the uh, They're constantly agitating with the president. They were ready to impeach Andrew Johnson in 1866. It takes them two years, 1868, before they finally impeach him. They come within one vote of convicting the president of the United States. And the day after they fail to convict him, what do they do? They submit new articles of impeachment against him. You can't make this stuff up. The more things change in American history, the more they say. They had just an obsession, an unhealthy obsession, with trying to get rid of the president and they made no bones about it that impeachment, as they saw it, was a political procedure. And so so they would just kind of look for, yeah, he, he broke this law, but they were going to impeach the guy anyways. So I'm sort of getting off on a tangent no, no, here. But, but, you, 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 you see where no, we're going. You, you
0: led me exactly where I was hoping you would lead me, the irrational obsession yeah. with trying to get rid of an American president. I mean that—that's kind of the end. Uh, of yes. I mean, that's kind of the end
1: of early American history, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and it kind of ends on that sour note. Yes.
0: Yeah. And um. Whoa. Yeah. I that's see what of, you did there. Well, I mean, I tried to, and I think he, being a professor, he knows the um the he, facts far better. He, he, than he I. set
1: me up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I gave him a layup. But yeah. He nailed it. He nailed it without question. Thank <laughs> you, Dr. Bolt. Have a good week, guys. Good thank to you. see <laughs> you. I want to thank our sponsors. Carolina Bank serves communities throughout northeastern South Carolina, offering a wide range of services to meet every personal or business need from straightforward accounts to complex finances. They're prepared to help you reach your financial goals. Carolina bank banking on tradition since 1936 member FDIC Pepsi of Florence represent the entire product line of PepsiCo. One of the world's leading food and beverage companies. Pepsi of Florence also serve brands from other great companies such as Dr. Pepper, Canada, dry Lipton tea, Gatorade, and various regional brands. Mickey Finn's largest South Carolina Liquor Wholesaler, serving every county in the state, largest bourbon selection statewide. They ship wines to 43 states, opening soon a new beverage warehouse across from Bucky's on I-95 in Florence. They support USC Athletics, including williams Bryce, and Colonial Life Arena. Marlborough Peti Electric Co-op, if you're in big business and looking for an industrial park in the south, to build your new plant, consider Marlboro PD Electric Co op's new PD Commerce Center, uh, an industrial park located at the I 95 exit in Florence, South Carolina. Check it out at MPDC Co op or PDEC.com.